Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Points of Information, the Debater Associations of Victoria's podcast aimed at our school's competition debaters, where we discuss all things debate related in our school's competition. This week, we are going to be looking at the inevitable online competition that has been going on to replace the normal face-to-face competition because of the usual suspect, coronavirus. We've got a panel of three other advanced senior adjudicators, which will be going through the topics of round two, as well as some of the more changes and considerations that have to be made when we switch to an online debating format. And we will introduce them to you now. First up, in no particular order other than alphabetical, we have Karina. Hello, Karina. How are you? Hi, Alexander. I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Enjoying the nice comfort of a lovely, warm study. Would you care to give us a brief three-sentence summary of what you do and your activities in the DAV? Absolutely. Three sentences or less. This is my fifth year as an adjudicator with the DAV. I began in 2015, and since 2015, I have been doing not only adjudicating the debating competitions, also public speaking competitions. I've been an RC for a number of years, and I also run a number of the training sessions in schools and also um, sometimes coaching teams as well. Very good. Our next panellist is Garjan. Hello, Alex. How are you doing? So I graduated from high school in 2012. As a high school student, I was involved in the school's competition myself as a debater, and I've been an adjudicator since I graduated, so about seven or eight years now. And like Korea, now I do a lot of the training activities and coaching activities as well, um, both in Melbourne and in, in regional schools as well. Excellent. Finally, our third panelist is Vivian. Hello, Vivian. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, Alex. Um, And you sound like you're doing quite well. Uh, So about me, I started adjudicating in 2016. I've been adjudicating for the past five years, doing training sessions, RCing on occasions. I also did debating in high school. And yeah, debating is just really great. Love being here. And as always, I am Alexander, the DAVS Media and Publications Officer. Just to round things off, I guess, I've been adjudicating since 2017, also RC of Ballarat and a few other frequent adjudicator of the Western Suburbs and Geelong, of course. Okay, then. So it's a case of we are now a a fair way into the schools competition. It's been very interrupted and all over the place, but we're now sort of kind of back on track. And most regions, I think, have finished their round two. There might be one or two left, but hopefully they will have finished by the time this podcast goes out. So I think it now is a good time to talk about some of the round two topics and what we thought of them. So does anyone want to go first or do we want to start at A grade or D grade or some other grade? Mm. I'd say we can maybe start at A and then go through to D. Mm. Excellent. All right. A grade. That the government should outsource climate and energy policy to a panel of experts. So mm. who's seen uh-huh. that topic? Because I must confess I haven't seen any A grades in the last few weeks. Me neither. I haven't seen any A grade topics. I have seen this topic. Yeah, I've heard this one a couple of times now as well. What How'd did you think of it? So what I will say is I think at this stage we've all over our years um, whether it's in debating or otherwise, we've heard this debate, you know, over climate change and what should be done a hundred times by now, right? And there's a there's a balance between, I guess, keeping things fresh and understanding what, you know, even if this topic is, you know, vaguely different to other ones, what exactly is being done wrong in those other, you know, climate change topics that's being done wrong in, wrong in this one, and which we can see as well possibly being done, you know, wrong in future iterations. I think one thing I really noticed again this time is that students have really complex ideas about climate change and what should be done. That's really exciting to know that students are able to understand what the politics, 
with the social implications, the economic implications, and the ecological effects of climate change as well. But I think what students spend too much time doing, one thing I noticed this time around as well, is really trying to justify that climate change is a thing, and that's why we need to be doing these things. And I think at this stage, we can kind of say that unless the topic is, oh, is climate change real, both sides kind of agree with the fact that, you know, we have environmental things that we need to be doing. Um, and really in these debates on both sides, then we want to be focusing more on the app or the neg, on this understanding, right, that we have a mutual and shared interest on the app and the neg in solving climate change. So it's not neither side has to prove that it is an issue, right, or that the science is or isn't correct. What we're trying to prove is that, you know, we have the best idea on the app or the neg for dealing with, with those implications, right? So try to, again, save time on explaining or justifying based on the climate science, more time, you know, explaining why your position is the best one for, for making progressive action. I absolutely agree with what Garjan has said. One of the, probably the technical case setup um, flaws that I've seen quite commonly with this particular topic is that usually the affirmative team sets up a lot of time on why we need a panel of experts and they'll set up a number of positives. They'll say panel of experts are good and they'll go for it. But one of the things that they lack in sometimes is that they fail to say why a panel of experts is better than the status quo. So why is a panel of experts more efficient or, you know, do, does it get better results? How is that better than going through parliament or relying on politicians? So it's all well and good to say, yes, panel of experts is good. But if the negative team can just say they might be good, but they're not as good as, then that's where the affirmative team seems to fall down. Has that happened very often in the debates that you've seen? It's happened in both. So I've seen two debates of this topic and it happened in both. Yeah, sort of further to that, more generally, two things that are fairly universal for debates that I see is when we're talking about the environment, it's just one of the things I can just expect to hear is both are going to talk about how climate change is real and so on and so forth. And I did see this in the last topic that we should ban climate change denial. I heard so many arguments about how climate change is real that were just wasting time because both teams were agreeing with each other and it wasn't related to the topic. And the other thing of linking it back, there are times where I feel like a broken record about teams not talking about what is in the actual topic. As you said, Karina, they're just going on a tangent and they're failing to address the topic properly, which is really frustrating because they have these good ideas that are let down by just a tiny bit of not being able to say, and that is why, and that is why we should outsource our policy decisions. Yeah, so to back up what you and Karina have both just said, the wording of the topic really matters here because we're not saying that the government should, you know, ask for climate and energy policy from, you know, experts or panels because that's already being done. We see that not just on environment. We see it, for example, also in royal commissions. We see it in, you know, things like fiscal policy, so economic policy as well, right? And why does that matter? So when we look at fiscal policy, which means things like the interest rate, the government isn't just getting advice from them. Those boards like the RBA, so the Reserve Bank, are totally in control of that kind of policy, right? They, they have autonomy to act independently from the government to, to put things into action. And that's what we're saying here as well, right? With this topic, we need the affirmative side to be a bit more ruthless and say, we know, we know at the moment that the government already gets advice on climate and energy policy from experts, right? Or from panels. The panels advise the government on any number of things, right? And the negative side as well. The, the reason the negative side can, as Karina pointed out, you know, the reason they can say, oh, they're already getting advice 
right? So it doesn't really matter because we can do X, Y, and Z things that are more effective. The reason they can say that is because we don't have affirmative sides being, you know, ruthless enough or taking a hard line enough approach and saying it's not just about getting that advice, but it's about maybe separating government, you know, in your model, what are we doing? We're separating government from the experts and we're giving the experts that autonomy or that control, having, you know, had these things outsourced to them to make things that go above the issues we have at the moment with politics, like indecisiveness and clashes between major parties and so on, right? So the feminist side needs to say it's more effective because we're getting rid of or we're bypassing those things. We're giving you know these panels more control than they have at the moment. And that's why the negative side can't rebut us and say, oh, other things can be done better because the status quo already has that panel expertise. Because yeah, we're going above and beyond the status quo. So that's really important is to identify in the wording of the topic, what makes this different and explain in your model then how that is that more effective, that control that's not subject to the failings of democracy that's what makes the panel more effective here when they have more control to actually put things in place not just give advice and policy that may or may not be brought to, to parliament Garden actually said a couple of magic words that i want to talk about and that's the hardline approach and i don't know if that's something that has been covered in previous podcasts uh, that is it's been i think it might have been covered in passing we haven't done a full episode on it okay i'd probably think it's something to discuss a little bit later degrade is where the issue of the hardline came up more in terms of the debate. But one of the things that I think is a real strength to a team is where they realise that the approach that they're taking may not necessarily be attractive, that, you know, yes, it's a very, it's hardline, there's little room for negotiation, and they go for it. And usually if an affirmative team or a negative team can do that well, it makes it easier to justify their position because they're not trying to in any way take a weaker stance they're not trying to negotiate or mitigate small circumstances but instead they're saying here's the approach we're taking we're justifying it to the best of our ability these are the reasons why we think it works and having that unforgiving approach can be very persuasive in a debate because it's kind of showing that you know what yes you acknowledge that there are some reasons why people might disagree but those reasons aren't strong enough and Arjun said the hardline is something that's you know, can be used quite well and particularly something I'd like to discuss more when we get to the degrade topic. Yeah, I think I'd agree with Karina there. For me, at least, I don't really have much novel to, to add here, but I do appreciate bravery from debaters when they can argue the hard line rather than trying to water down the topic because they're afraid of losing or they're afraid that it's not as good if they take it too far. Yeah, I think even if it's just in theory and not in practice, you know, for any debate, we're talking about, you know, changing the world realistically with our modeling as well. So that bravery goes a long way to show that you understand what needs to be done, especially on something as, as drastic as climate change. So don't kind of implement half measures. You've got to go all the way. Round 2B grade that we should revoke the tax exempt status of religious institutions. I didn't see much of this. I think I might have seen it twice. How many times have you seen it? Well, for me, I've seen the debate once, and it was a very spicy debate. Um, <laughs> lots of, I think it, there are a lot of things to consider with a debate like this. You know, mm. uh, it's almost like a marrying on, of, of two concepts, really. Um, the role of religion in society and that relationship with tax and what mm. does tax actually represent for our society. And so I think students struggled a bit with trying to reconcile those two concepts and how they can move forward with that. Um, yeah. Mm. It sort of quickly got out of hand the two or three times I saw it in oh. that we're only talking about tax-exempt status of religious institutions. 
but in a nearly don't mention the war fashion, obviously some of the less glamorous issues and controversies surrounding the Catholic Church came up in multiple debates mm. and a few things like that. There was, again, with the linking it back to the topic, there were a lot of things that probably could have been valid if they were linked back to the topic, but there was a lack of, and this is why we should uh, revoke the tax-exempt status of these institutions. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think walking into this debate and leaving it, I thought it really came down to almost like they were trying to answer the question of should there be a separation between religion and government if we're going to really reduce it and... It was a fairly complex topic. I'm not sure if I'm surprised that it was a B-grade topic or if it should have been an A-grade topic, but there were faults on either side of the teams when they ended up seeming like they were advocating either relentlessly for religion or they were arguing against the concept of religion entirely. Like, it was just very strange. And it again, it seemed like they didn't know how to link it back to the topic, you know, like the affirmative team arguing that we should revoke tax exemptions for the religious organizations will consistently mm. bring up you know, the less savory, well, pretty much unsavory histories we know of the Catholic Church. And then we have the negative team just sort of trying to argue uh, for the role of religion in society. But again, there seemed to be perhaps a lack of awareness of how tax works and what the function of tax is. Yeah, I think I think it's absolutely fine to want to put your argument, even for a topic like this one, in the broader context of the history of the church. And it shows a lot of complexity to be able to do so, because that stuff does matter, right? We need to be talking about context. And yeah, if we're linking back to the topic, that's important. But I think as well, you know, with your adjudicators, you're going to have adjudicators from a very broad spectrum of not only their political views, but their experiences of religion as well. But what any adjudicator yeah. is going to want to see... If you remember some of the previous, sorry to cut you off there, Gajan, but remember some of the previous panellists on this very podcast, some of them are very religious, going to church every weekend. And on the other end of the spectrum, there have also been panellists that have never been to church. And then there's, of course, all manner of people in between. So you really need to be mindful that your adjudicator really could be any one of those, especially with some of the topics like this. Yeah, sorry, absolutely. No, that's, that's okay. That's, that's, yeah, that's a valid point to make. That's exactly what I was saying. And I think what any adjudicator is going to want to see, regardless of their experiences of, of faith and, and organized religion and politics as well, is they want to see that you're able to do so, engage with these topics sensitively, you know, in your language, in you know, being respectful and conscious of how these things affect people, you know, if they're really involved in their church, right? And, you know, not just the adjudicator, but people you're able to reference in your speech as well. If they're really involved, right, they, you know, you want to be able to protect their interests as well as everyone else's interests in a broader society as well. So that sensitivity really matters, the empathy, to show that you can provide better outcomes for multiple stakeholders in your debate is really important if you are going to draw in that, that extra context and making criticisms or your endorsements of things like charitable activities and why those deserve or don't deserve tax exemptions. Now, interestingly, I have not seen this debate topic, but I have seen ones that are similar in the past. And so what I find interesting is that, and I don't know if it happened in this particular topic, but I find that sometimes students or teams will go down a route of religion is bad or religion is good, and therefore that equates to whatever the action being proposed. So in this particular case, like as Alex was saying earlier about linking, just making sure that the arguments that you're presenting do actually directly link to the topic rather than just saying, you know, religion is bad and therefore they should not have tax exemptions or religion is good and therefore it should remain the same way. I would nearly say one of the biggest problems with this debate from that point of view was more of a case of they would go and say the church has done all these bad things, so why should we allow them to be tax exempt? 
instantly turned around by the tax department is not the justice department. If they've, if they've been doing bad things, that needs to be handled by Department of Justice, not by adding financial penalty to these institutions, because that's not going to force them to change in the same way that a ruling from, the, from a court would. And this came up in, I think, nearly every debate that I saw of this topic, which hints at the larger issue that the B-grade teams weren't wargaming their arguments, as in they weren't thinking. It seems a bit obvious, I guess, and it sort of surprised me that they hadn't really anticipated that coming as a response to that argument, which is the other big issue. There are a lot of other big issues I feel like I have with this topic. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the things with this topic. There seemed to be a lack of responsivity between the two teams in the debates that I saw, at least. Yeah, another thing I would raise, again, I did have a lot of issues with this topic. Not the topic itself, but rather how students would approach it. And I think it's quite reflective of how students are approaching it and also perhaps the wider Australian society and where we're situating ourselves. So there was a huge focus on the Catholic Church in Australia, which is fair, but then it also seemed to forget that other religious organisations exist in Australia. Oh, I got one that covered Buddhism and uh, Hinduism, so... Huh. Okay. That was, I mean, that was nice. It was very broad. That was very, um, that's very good. But yeah. definitely the second most popular would have definitely been uh, Islam. So mm, yeah. I, I do see your point there. I can easily see some teams overlooking the other options. Yeah, exactly. Like it seemed to almost center larger religions, which, which makes sense because, you know, that was more the majority. But then I want to be able to see students manage to find a common principle and then manage to apply it consistently because the examples they raise as to why vote tax exemption or religious organisations were quite example-centric, which I, I don't think is the best approach in a debate. So I think for mine, the best... So this was a prepared topic, right? So it's not like a secret, it's not like it's a secret topic. So we expect the students to do their research and understand you know, every part of the topic before they go into the debate. Um, and so the best speeches that I saw, ones that were able to talk about, you know, why does tax policy actually matter, right? So Alex, you spoke earlier about how, you know, a lot of speeches would come down to, oh, the tax office shouldn't be, you know, like an arbiter of justice in Australia or anywhere else. Easily the most common rebuttal, yeah. But what tax exemptions mean, right, and what, what taxation means, it's not just about getting revenue, but it also affords institutions a certain amount of power, right? Because they have more money to, to implement their activities and, you know, they escape a certain amount of oversight or accountability as well, right? These, this is the nature of tax exemption and how tax policy works. And why does, if you're trying to justify that or argue against it, we're talking about, okay, why is that power, right? Why are those allowances justified? You don't have any religious organization, right? So you don't even have to go into necessarily using specific examples, right, of, of Catholicism or Islam or, or anything else to be able to say, is that power justified? You know, if there are activities that, you know, religious institutions can perform because of their ability to get people on side, to create community, to create a willingness to want to contribute to that community, do charitable things, to provide things that government can't because they, government doesn't have that same access to community leadership and faith and so on, right? So that's, that's what we're really trying to get to the heart of here, right? Is, you know, marrying, you know, like that, the power that's afforded by tax exemptions with, you know, what, what the religious organizations or institutions stand for and their ability to, to provide for social good. And does that then justify not having to, to pay tax to, to the same extent? Yeah, I just want to add to that point, um, especially in terms of service to the community. That was a pretty strong argument that was raised by the negative team. When it was rebutted at times, I thought that, should be some consideration, perhaps this is a different topic or a kettle of fish, not for profits or community legal centres, questioning what the core purpose, I guess, what service to com the community means and whether they should be tax exempt or we should revoke that tax exemption and how it makes religious organisations vastly different. 
I think that needed to be explored a lot more. Yeah, for sure. I certainly thought that something like that would become a sticking point for a lot of teams. Thankfully, it didn't. But I think it is definitely worth minding that a lot of charities are not necessarily religious institutions, or if they are affiliated with a given religion, they are not the same as the religion itself from, I guess, an Australian tax office point of view, how the ATO would assess them, they're different organisations. Yeah, also, I'm just going to say something. The points made about the history of the Catholic Church, it's also an issue I think somebody raised before of, is this a good means of addressing the problem if we revoke tax exemptions for these religious organisations? So I think that was something students needed to take into account. Yeah, a lot of the why should we do this. It's a very high-level discussion about B-grade. Are we all done at B-grade or does anyone have anything more they'd like to say? I just want to say one more thing because I I need to get this off my chest. I thought it was just really interesting to see students discussing the relationship between money and morality, so how they sort of viewed morality being quite focused on the role of religion. So, again, like they, they couldn't quite tackle that. So I would say on the whole, even though I saw one B-grade debate, I have a feeling it was not treated well because I had a really good B-grade debate, but it still wasn't done very well. So I'm not sure how it was across the board for the other teams. Okay, hopefully we can tone it down a little bit and be a bit more approachable for our C-grade debaters out there. Oh my God. (laughs) Who have uh, finished their... No, that's all right. I think we can afford to be some high level at B grade by the time we're in BCE English. Uh, You should be aware of that stuff. But in C grade, that we should abolish trial by jury. Marina, you're just raring to go, aren't you? (laughs) You've seen me unmute the microphone and knew I wanted to jump on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I saw this topic a couple of times. Although, obviously, your adjudicator takes on the role of the average reasonable person and cannot take into consideration any personalised knowledge. This is still a topic I enjoy with a background in law and global studies, so I'm always looking forward to seeing a topic like this. So what I find really interesting is that the stronger debates that you see, and I feel like this is a general statement to make across the board, is where an affirmative team sets up a little bit of a context, like why are we having this debate in the first place? You know, what's the problem with the status quo? So I've seen a few of these debates and the strongest ones definitely started affirmative with them setting up what's the role of the jury? Why do they exist? Why have we chosen this system? And just explaining briefly what a jury is. Now, please, if you're going to have an introduction like this or setting up context, please keep it brief. It's not an argument. It's not persuasive. It's just setting the tone because, you know, you might get an adjudicator with a legal background. You might get an adjudicator with a scientific background. Now, your adjudicator as the average reasonable person will have the assumed knowledge of someone who has finished high school. So it's assumed that they would know some of the basic things, but they might need a little bit um, more information or context to set up the debate. What was interesting and a strength for a lot of the teams is having a clear model. So a couple of models I saw was one team saying that we should have a panel of judges who would replace the jury. Another suggestion was that there would just be one judge who would replace the jury. And on the negative team, the strongest cases were those who just argued for the status quo. I did see one debate where the negative team tried to set up a counter model by saying that trial by jury should still remain. However, there would be more education to the jury and there would be more things in place. We're kind of a bit of a soft line approach here, trying to 
you know, realize that, yes, there are flaws, but by acknowledging those flaws and then trying to adjust those flaws, the question kind of comes to how is your change better than the change proposed by the affirmative team? So in that way, it was a bit of a dangerous situation for the negative team where you really have to be able to argue those nuances and the differences well to be able to be more persuasive than the affirmative team. Yeah, I would nearly make the argument that this is following on from discussions in many previous interviews about when to use a model. This is a prime example of when the negative team probably should not be using a counter model. Yes. And usually when I'm running a training session at schools, I might say, you know, the affirmative team has the option to implement a model. Negative team, you can either implement a counter model or argue the status quo. And I think sometimes negative teams think that they have to have a counter model. Sometimes arguing the status quo is, in fact, the easier option for them. Agreed. So I haven't actually seen this topic yet, but I will say, even just looking at it, it's very open-ended. Like it's very, very, not vague, but there's a lot of room for either team to go in, in any direction with it um yeah, as it's one of those ones where it like depends this. on how the affirmative team presents their model Neil. yeah exactly like as the negative said it's very difficult almost to prepare for you know to have a counter model because you don't know what the affirmative side is going to say right as the affirmative side you really want to come into a debate like this with a very decisive model right when we we're talking about hardline or strong models earlier this is a topic for where it really matters because you want to say that you're able to do away with what's been like a very well entrenched process for quite a while now right so your model better be pretty strong and as a negative side, then in your preparation, right? Because again, this is a prepared topic. You want to make sure that you come in with some pretty strong defenses of the jury system in understanding, you know, why was it even brought in in the first place? What are the principles of, you know, communal justice and so on that validate the system under the status quo? So I think, as Karina said, yeah, sometimes the status quo absolutely can be a powerful defense on the part of the negative side, as long as you really understand why there's a reason that we have the status quo, right? People have invented systems like this for a reason. Do your research, be able to justify them based upon the principles that have been well discussed in the past. Yeah. Just my two cents, because I also haven't seen this topic in action. So I don't want to make any assumptions on how students have been tackling it. But yes, supporting what Karina said, being very wary of people's understanding of the topic. They may have prior knowledge, they may not. I'm also wary of using particular examples as a way to support your point, either arguing for or against the abolition of the trial by jury. But I did see a speech at some point which used a singular example as the sole reason for why we should abolish the trial by jury. So always bearing in mind that arguments should be principles based and then supported by evidence rather than the other way around. Absolutely. I would nearly say that this topic is a, a very good candidate for something that would be likely to see as a secret topic in maybe A grade. Mm. in that you don't need much evidence to be able to argue it. Oh, yeah. It would be, I would say this is very possible to have this debate with no evidence. Agreed. This or rather, is... you know, no evidence that you would need to research. Agreed. It's, as you would in a secret topic. It's a very principled debate and so it does make a good secret topic. And as Vivian said, absolutely, your examples are there to support your point, not make your point. And I think that's a very common piece of feedback that I give across the board just because sometimes you might get, and in this debate I had one example that was presented to me in a lot of detail and at the end of that example, I was left there thinking, and your point is. And then when the opposition rebutted their one argument, 
it just became almost like this cherry picking of examples. And overall, I'm left there as the adjudicator thinking, but the principle still stands. So which team dealt with the principle better? Which team responded to the opposition better? And how was this overall argument debated and and who do I give it to on, on what ground? Because when you're only cherry picking your examples and you're only presenting or rebutting one example with another example, that can go on indefinitely. There can be several examples. And how long are we going to spend listening to all these different examples when it doesn't actually prove a singular point at the end of the day? Because every single example has different factors that come into play and can influence the overall end result. Yeah. And I think Karina's absolutely right on that, especially because I can understand to some extent why students would want to use examples. It's actually quite an easy way of appealing to your audience, you know, really stoking whatever emotion you can get out of certain examples, particularly for one like we should abolish trial by jury. But again, most arguments and points need to be grounded in principle. The only thing I will acknowledge just before we do move on to degrade is that I would say it would be fair that unless you're probably a legal studies student, you might not have the, I guess, entire grasp of some of the nuts and bolts of how a jury works, which is, I guess, something that just to be aware of, that's no excuse because this is a prepared topic. You have time to research that. But it, I guess it's very easy for us as adults that have been out there and potentially even done jury du duty at some point to talk about it compared to a year 10 student that has not done jury duty and is aware that there's juries that see some court trials, but not aware of some of the finer points of how a jury may operate. So just always be careful about that and definitely don't hesitate to research if you're unsure about something, in, certainly in preference to making assumptions about how something works. Absolutely, Alex. Just before we move on as well, I absolutely, I really appreciate it when students go out of their way to do research on a topic that they may not be familiar with. And I know when I was debating, I definitely learned a lot through that process too. I guess as the adjudicator, as someone with the average reasonable person and the average reasonable person's amount of knowledge, there are some things that your adjudicator might just realize is an absolute flaw. But at the end of the day, we're looking at how well you structure your arguments. So yes, it's important that what you say is true and factual. Yes, absolutely. But if you make one tiny mistake, that's not the end of the debate for you. That's not saying that we automatically deduct several marks off your matter. We're looking at how well you use that information to support your point as well. And that's kind of the point that I'm making with the use of examples is it's good that you have the example, but how are you using that example to support your overall point? Adjudicators are looking at how well you present your arguments and speeches, as well as the context or the content of your speech. Finally, we have the degrade round two topic, that we should embrace a cashless economy, which I think is nearly surprisingly preminiscent given that we announced this topic very early on this year before coronavirus entered everyone's minds. And one of those weird cases where the topic came out before the material of the topic became, I guess, the social discussion, didn't it? With everyone turning against cash because of its ability to move germs and other dirty things from one person to another in coins or notes. So we've all gone tap and go in these last few weeks, but the topic has existed before that happened. So obviously, I think this would have given D-grade debaters a lot of stuff to talk about, perhaps more so than we anticipated when we were setting the topics. How many of you have seen this one? 
So I've seen this one a couple of times. I think this is just a great topic, not just for, you know, degrade debates or schools debates or formal debating in general, but just a great topic to talk about with anyone. Because, and I think the coronavirus really proves why, because cash is something that affects everyone. You know, everyone has, probably will have thoughts on this, but until you get asked the question, oh, what do you think society would look like without cash? You probably don't think about it. You don't have to justify, you know, your gut feels, you know, when someone hands over a $10 note to you and you think, oh, this might be a bit germy, right? You don't actually have to justify until someone asks you that question. So I think this is like a really great topic to talk about with anyone because you'll get some really interesting ideas, you know, whether it's germs or whether they have other ideas about, you know, how cash works in school canteens or how it works. And, you know, I had a lot of discussion about drug deals, which is really interesting to hear students talk about, other illicit activities, talk about political corruption. There's a little spectrum of ideas that even D-grade students, you know, who we say might not have the experience of A-grade or B-grade students, even D-grade students were able to talk about quite like a broad spectrum of ideas. They might have heard, you know, from other aspects of school or, you know, things they've heard from their parents and so on. And so being able to start, I think, this debate with that gut response, oh, if my life existed without cash, what would it look like is a really great place to start. And then to draw upon events like coronavirus, which make it almost a necessity, right? But to start again with your understanding of, you know, what does that cash actually mean in the world that I live is a really interesting way to, to frame the debate and then to go from there. So I think this is a great topic. I think it is a very great topic, but for a few other reasons as well, because this is a very easy debate to talk about in that we, we all have used money, I hope, you know, at the school canteen or whatever, you know, even if you're in degrade and you're not paying bills yet. It's something that we can, we all know what money is, which makes it very approachable. Again, this is a very good candidate for a secret topic, but perhaps not for some of the reasons I'm about to talk about. And the second reason why I like it is despite it being really approachable, it's got a lot of layers of depth. So it allows good teams to be able to, I guess, shine a bit, to demonstrate their knowledge, their research, and their ability to discuss some of the finer aspects. But if we give it to a team that might not have as much experience in finding those rebuttals and in finding those arguments, they're still able to have a very good debate by not going as in-depth. With cash, it's a very simple of are we using cash or are we using card, but we can take that into more depth by, as as was mentioned earlier, talking about corruption or talking about political scandals or drug dealers, and then we can talk about it on a more technical level. You know, when I hand cash to someone, there's just cash. I'm paying by card, then there's a cut of that uh, percentage that's going to MasterCard or Visa, and that's, you know, money leaving Australia. And you can just keep on going in-depth and in-depth, and it just keeps on going deeper and deeper. And there's all these different aspects to talk about. It gives, I guess, every team the ability to talk about this topic on a level that suits them and the amount of research that they've done. So I, I like this topic for different reasons. It's interesting. I also agree that this is a good topic in that, It's definitely approachable for newer debaters because it's talking about things that we know. But from a a topic selection perspective, I guess you could say, it's also interesting because I feel like it could be done well at a perhaps a B grade or even an A grade in that rather than... And and yeah, and looking at the types of debates, rather than this one being a normative debate or that being, you know, a debate that requires a practical response, this is a very principled debate or empirical debate. And those ones are generally harder to argue than a normative debate. It's sometimes harder to argue for a principled stance or a philosophical perspective than it is to argue for a, a practical change. So in that sense, I think it could be done quite well at the older year levels. But at D grade, I'm less concerned about 
that particular style of argument and relating that just because I don't really expect first-time debaters to, to know the difference between a normative and empirical topic and to be able to realize the nuances and debating those differences. One of the things I will say is that... <laughs> To go back to the hard line again, I found that there were some really good negative teams that were able to just argue the status quo quite well and be able to to use that to their advantage. But I did have some creative thinking from a couple of affirmative teams. And unfortunately, it worked better in some places than others. So there was some really creative thinking in terms of arguments that were raised. And that was great to see. I had some arguments about how crime would be reduced because, you know, if we embraced a society where people only ever used credit card, then no one would want to commit crimes because it'd be easier to track you down. Or, you know, it's easier to find a card that's been stolen than it is cash that's been stolen. So nice creative arguments. But in terms of models to be argued, I did have an affirmative team who said that, you know, we should embrace cashless economy in an inclusive way and then meant that to say that there should be a balance between cash and card. So essentially just arguing for the status quo. And once again, it's just a matter of being really careful of the model that you're putting forward and making sure that it is actually arguing your point. Don't be afraid to just say, yes, this is something we should do rather than trying to walk a fine line between the two and ultimately that not working out to what you would hoped it would. What I will say as well is I was really impressed by some of the nuance that both teams were able to come up with in terms of thinking about who exactly does this affect. And that's important at a degrade level. Again, I talked about empathy earlier. Degrades that have been to our training sessions, what Garjan is talking about is the magical stakeholder approach. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of degraders, you know, when I heard this debate, were able to talk about this is a very, you know, it's a very Western centric topic. It operates as well. I think a lot of the models on the affirmative side, you know, that idealize the idea of a cashless economy operate on the idea of a lot of like privilege and that you have to have to maybe to move towards a cashless lifestyle. And what do I mean by that? You know, a lot of places overseas, I heard a lot of examples talk about how you know, there are countries overseas where, you know, we have a culture that involves cash, right? Cash is at the heart of a lot of cultural activities, whether it's things like street vending, informal transport, and food in communities that don't resemble the ones that we have in Australia, right? But even within Australia as well, there are people maybe who have more parts of their lives, more subject to, you know, persecution, right? We talk about crime and why it's, you know, it's good to eliminate crime by getting rid of cash, right? There are certain people, certain groups in, in Australia, even who are more likely to be prosecuted for certain crimes than others. So that injustice does exist. And those people have more of a fear of having every single one of their financial transactions being tracked when, you know, those transactions is part of life. So ultimately cash is required in the, or transactions, financial transactions are required in the lives that we lead to get basic things done, right? From getting food to mobility or transport and everything else, right? So being able to recognize that not everyone has as much to lose by moving towards the cashless economy, again, shows a recognition of all the stakeholders involved and why we do need more you know, nuance to be able to say, we recognize, you know, some people are going to suffer more than others, right? And that, again, is really impressive to see in some of the degrade debates that, that came up this one. One thing I will just mention as I guess a closing note on this degrade topic is that well it's very good to talk about how other cultures react with cash and it's certainly definitely a cultural thing. It's fairly moot unless you're able to relate that to how that will apply to the Australian economy because of course with this topic not explicitly mentioning any other countries it's assumed to be Australia or more geographically refined. And when it's talking about a cashless economy, it would be fair to say we're talking about the Australian economy. And it's not exactly fair if the affirmative team was to define it to include 
uh, other countries. Oh, for sure. But I think, I mean, as much as we say that, you know, all the debates are centered in Australia, right? Again, I think being able to understand that even Australia... Yeah, yeah, if you tie it back and say this is what could happen in Australia or this is, you know, something like that, does make it an entirely valid point. Yeah, and the Australian economy sits within a global economy, right? And we talk about culture, we talk about migration, um, we talk about people coming in and out of the country. To be able to understand that exists in that global context is is really important, I yeah, think. Basically, but just be careful. <laughs> you do want to tie it to, to an Australian understanding yeah. as well. But basically, just be careful. Yeah, and I think a point like that matters as much for the negative side the affirmative side, right? No matter who defines it, either side can really make that claim that it matters to, to understand, even beyond Australia, what do other countries do well that we can adopt and we, we'd lose out on if we went totally cashless. So one other thing I thought we'd talk about briefly, because we've still got round three coming and with restrictions in Victoria, at least getting tighter going into term three uh, and possible delays of the start of the term three, I think it's fair to say online debates are here to stay. I thought we'd talk about how we should be debating online because obviously for us as adjudicators, there's a bit of a change into how that works. So I thought I'd ask our panelists here to share some tips and tricks and other things, I guess, that debaters should be aware of when they're participating in an online debate. Does anyone have any pet peeves of online debating that they need to be heard by the world? Yep. So in terms of pet peeves, obviously in terms of manner, it's very difficult to get that across in a Zoom call because you don't have the room. You can't quite show your use of hand gestures, eye contact. So it's important to make sure firstly that your camera is uh, situated so that it's not facing upwards. So that's a small thing, but it could really enhance the speech and make it different. Make sure you stand up when you're speaking, especially with the use of cue cards. And because all we see is what the camera shows us. Make sure you're using smaller cue cards so that we can see your face and look up as often as you can. Try not sitting at your computer, actually standing and stepping away from the computer and your table would be really helpful for your adjudicators. And try not to read off the screen if you can. We, we can definitely tell if you're reading off the screen. I would love to jump in there. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I absolutely 100% agree with what Viv has just said. And one of the things about reading is that we can tell, and even to the point where I can tell if someone's reading either their cue cards or the computer screen without actually looking at you. And the reason why that is, because reading doesn't just affect your eye contact, it affects your vocal delivery and a fair bit too. So one of the things that I reward in manner is where a student makes the effort or a speaker makes the effort to really engage their voice and make sure that they're utilizing that to the best of their ability. So it's just a matter of, you know, talk to me like I'm a human in the room with you, not like I am just a piece of the furniture that you're just talking to. So using things like vary your pace, your tone, you know, use pauses. If something is exciting, then really reflect that in your tone. If something is really upsetting or there's some kind of emotional relation to what you're saying, make sure that you utilize your voice because it's really important. And it's just one of those things that makes an audience more inclined to engage with you. But if you're reading your speech, it's much harder to utilize your voice because you're busy trying to make sure that you're getting things worth perfect. So what I always recommend is try to dot point your ideas and your arguments and then be familiar with the content, do your research and make sure that you're ready to prepare that speech. But if you are going off dot pointed ideas, usually it means that it gets, we get a better delivery 
um, not just in your eye contact, but your vocal delivery. So that's one of the things that I really pay attention to when I'm marking manner. Yeah, the thing I would say is the way that the whole eye contact work things, you don't magically get points for looking up. That's not how debate scoring works. Look at the score sheet. Okay, we're not handing out score sheets, but you should know it's the three M's, matter, method, manner. When we're talking about manner, we're talking about engagement with your audience. We're not talking about looking up. You're not getting points for looking up. You're getting points for engaging with your audience. And if you're just reading out a speech to someone, you're fundamentally not engaging with your audience, even if you do happen to also be looking at the web camera at the same time that you're reading your speech. That's not engagement. Aces like Karina can hear it. Some of the rest of us have to do with just looking for the telltale signs of like a news anchor's eyes flicking across the screen that they're reading, which is very obvious when you know what to look for. I've become very good at looking for that from some of the public speaking uh, topics. Uh, sorry, pardon me, from some of the online public speaking competition videos. So it, it, it is very obvious to us. And at the end of the day, we understand as adjudicators that this is not ideal conditions. We're not in the same room. And we're not penalising you because you happen to be using a video call, or at the very least, we're penalising everyone equally, which basically doesn't make any difference either way. But we are still looking for people that make that attempt to engage with their audience, even if it is just one random school coordinator that happens to be in on the Zoom call. If you can still take a step back to be able to still try and present the gestures, try and vary your vocal delivery, and as well as trying to be engaging with your audience. That's very important, and you can still get the same kind of marks despite the fact that we're doing debating on Zoom or Teams or WebEx or whatever you happen to be using. Yeah, all really great comments so far. I think I'll give another plus one to standing up. A lot of students have been reluctant to do it, but I think you'll underestimate how much standing up does for A, your posture, which we know communicates a lot of confidence, and B, for just your vocal cords as well, you sound a lot clearer when you're, stand, you're standing up and you seem more comfortable as well than kind of sitting down and giving a speech. And when you're sitting down, you're more likely to, you know, like drop off a little bit or get a bit lazy in your posture and things as well. So I think standing up has benefits that, that go beyond, you know, consciously just doing it. I think in terms of awarding points for matter, um, I think there's nothing really that I'm looking for in particular with these ones. You know, we understand, all the judicators understand that it's very different to you know the live kind of performance that we're used to you giving, right? So no adjudicator is looking, expecting you to like give piercing eye contact into the camera at all times, and you're going to lose points if you don't do that, um, or anything like that. There's no like perfect standard for this kind of medium because we understand that we're judging you based on a feed, a video feed of you being in a room where very possibly there is one or none, like no other human beings there. But I think one thing that's really valuable is to be consistent in what you do and develop your own personal style and really own that, right? So again, you don't need to necessarily give eye contact to the camera the whole entire time. But if that's what you're comfortable with, yeah, then go ahead, do that, and you know, do it for your entire speech, right? Don't necessarily do that for a couple of minutes and then you know switch over to something else because those shifts as well can seem a bit unnatural within the same feed, right? Also, if you're comfortable, you know, looking ahead of the camera, looking at a point above it, pretending that there's someone behind the camera or an audience behind the camera that you're giving that speech to, be consistent and own that as well. Because that confidence, you know, if you're taking that into your identity and your performance that's being videoed, that again will come through and it'll seem a bit more natural 
and it'll seem like you're more comfortable as well. So I think consistency and style, these are things that we'd expect you to develop over time. But once you've found things that are working for you, don't second guess them to do them because that'll, with matter, confidence is, is key. That's what we're judging really is how confident your presentation style is, not necessarily you know, certain technical perfections that have to be achieved. You know, do what works for you and do it well. And that'll matter more than, you know, trying to refine yourself to any perfection in anything else you've been told is necessarily a good manner maybe something would be good to discuss is the idea of like communicating with your teammates i think yeah, it's just interesting I, think I, I, I don't have anything to say that jumps to mind but i just think it's an interesting thing to debate i do wonder you know how useful it is i'm sure it is to certain students but you know how do you kind of add that same value in this format i think is an interesting thing to talk about you know because normally it's like if you have that anxiety in a debate you know scribbling a note to your teammate on a piece of paper and sliding it across can like resolve it is there an equivalent here can you like comfort your teammate in the middle of an online debate yeah normally where i guess techno nazis when you see us in a normal face-to-face competition there is to be no technology no phones no nothing obviously we ignore this because you can't communicate with your teammates on the zoom call I mean, obviously you can, there is a chat, private chat functionality, but you can only speak to one person and it's no secret that the chat functionality in Zoom is fairly, (laughs) but um, (laughs) using your phone to communicate through your preferred chatting methodology, medium, whatever that might be, is fair. And very much loud. Yeah, it's very much loud. And it's very funny when you've got a video of every debater looking at them and you can see one typing something and then the next person laughing and it's just like, I can tell who's on a multi-call here. The only things to note is while you are allowed to communicate with your teammates using some other system other than Zoom or Teams or whatever we happen to be using to conduct the debate, no more than three people in that conversation, remember, same normal debating rules. It can only be the three people that are debating. But we do encourage you, you know, even if you're the first speaker and you've already spoken, write some notes to your third speaker, send them in a text message, or if you're on a voice call, you can, of course, just tell them because that's the great thing. You can mute yourself and you're not going to distract the opposing team, which is, I guess it adds you a bit more flexibility in how you you don't normally have to talk about in the rushed whisper like you normally do as we would uh, in a normal face-to-face competition. Use the tools at your disposal to your advantage in terms of that front. As long as you're being fair and honest about it, we don't mind, but please do talk to your teammates. I was going to say, well, if listeners haven't realised by now that they can communicate with their team members using technology, then I hope that they now know because in the first couple of debates that I adjudicated, I really made a point to say that, yes, it is different and usually you're not allowed to use technology. However, because you're not in the same room, you are allowed to communicate with your team members using technology. And the speakers looked so shocked. They were surprised. (laughs) They didn't know that they were allowed to do that. If there's any listeners out there who didn't know it before, please, please, please do communicate with your team members. And in some ways, it's almost nicer in the sense that as Garjan said before, it's, or perhaps it was you, Alex, I apologize. It's unpleasant when you're the adjudicator and you can hear teams whispering to one another and giving each other notes. It's, it's almost, even worse when you're speaking too. It's, it's worse when you're speaking, absolutely. But I just think it's rude and disrespectful to be that loud. Absolutely. Do communicate with your team members. But when you are that loud, it's off-putting to the speaker. And as an adjudicator, it's one of those things that gets a bit annoying because then I have trouble concentrating on the speaker and that's not fair to them yeah zoom has got a mute all button but teams does not and i don't think google meet does either but i haven't done a debate on google meet we're using all sorts of programs for these online debates 
Yeah, and I think as Karina said, as frustrating as it can be, if teams are too loud in a real life debate as the adjudicator, I think it is important, yeah, that here we tell students, you know, go ahead, communicate as much as you as you'd like using alternative means, because it's a really fun opportunity, right? Normally don't get that chance to communicate in real time or discuss in real time what's happening in the debate. I think that's a really valuable learning tool to be able to discuss it when it's still fresh. So it is very useful here to be able to, you know, use, you know, whether it's text message or anything else to discuss in real time and pass notes to your third speaker and become, you know, more more of a team in the actual debate than the normal debating allows for. So it's a great opportunity. It's just a learning opportunity that's, again, allowed to us because we're stuck with this format for, for the immediate future. Obviously, with all these different accounts that we're all using to conduct these debates, there might be a case where, you know, someone's using the Dev Zoom account in the morning and then somebody else is using it in the afternoon. There's been cases where I've logged on to adjudicate a debate and it's got my name has been preset as Charisma Taylor. Anyone that's watching should know that I'm not Charisma, actually, in fact, or Izzy or Kim or whoever else. And I normally try and set it to um, adjudicator when I get the chance. But just be aware when you're logging onto your debates that the adjudicator might not have the correct name. It's caused a little bit of confusion. It's always funny when it does happen, but just so you're aware of that, that's what's happening there because we cannot afford to have Zoom accounts for all 70 or 80 adjudicators when there's only maybe four or five debates happening at the same time. We're a not-for-profit and we do have a limited budget in that respect. <laughs> it is also very useful to us if students put their names, they rename themselves, the students rename themselves as well, because then we can you know, use that information to give you your scores and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Please do use your, your full name as your identifier or your Zoom name or your team's login ID or whatever it may be, because it makes scoring easier so we can track who's getting the Swanee Award at the end of the year. Hopefully yep. we still have a ceremony for the Swanee Awards. It might be online. Could I just add that with that, if students are going to be in the same room together, use one laptop together rather than, say, having two laptops in the same room, you know, <laughs> both on Zoom call, because it'd be, it's usually quite funny to hear the first affirmative speaker speaking and then hearing... Oh, the, the echo. Yeah, yeah, the echo. And yeah. Yeah, so it's quite strange. Um, just make sure you use the same laptop. If and make you sure are it's charged and make room. sure you've got its charger as well. That was the thing that befell one of my debates. The mm -hmm. three people in the same room had the laptop go flat on them. So that's never fun either. Yeah, and I guess it also makes it less confusing because I also need to track who's who, mm. which teams, which team, which school is which. And it's just, it's a very small thing, but it does make everything more streamlined. Undoubtedly. Yeah, I hear that microphone feedback noise in my dreams now. That's how much of an issue it's been this year. So <laughs> the more we all do collectively to get rid of it, the better. Yeah. The better um, for our mental health at this point. Yeah, exactly. If you are the only person in, in the room on your, like if you're with your teammates in the room, don't do this, obviously. If you're the if you're at home uh, debating, if you can use headphones, it really does cut down on that feedback, and it does make it easier to understand you. It's really just, a, I guess, a video conferencing etiquette thing. You know, mute your microphone when you're not speaking. Use headphones where possible so we don't get feedback. All the usual stuff. Yeah, and all your adjudicators have Zoom meetings for for work as well, and for union. And we can all say, I'm sure the skills that you're learning doing this are going to hold you in good stead going forward as well. So it's worth really forcing them as much as possible. And you know, like I said, practicing your personal style and, and getting that working. Right. I think that wraps it up nicely. We've been talking for <laughs> quite a while, so hopefully that has given you a bit of feedback on round two, even if it was very general. A little bit of 
how to hints and cool tricks for your upcoming rounds, whether they be on Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Google Meeks, or Cisco WebEx, or wherever it may be. Please do stay safe and healthy out there. And we will hopefully have another episode for you soon. But until then, please enjoy the upcoming debating competition. And thank you, panelists, for joining me tonight. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Alex.